You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of your Holy Scripture. We ask that this morning you will open our minds to it, that you will speak to us through it, and you will bring us to you with it. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Um, Three Sundays ago, we started a session talking about the uh, women and the others who encountered evidence, encountered evidence of the risen Lord, but could not wrap their minds around it. And then last Sunday, we had stories of the encounters that some of them had with the risen Lord, and they did not recognize him. Next week, Steve will take the group through a number of stories where Jesus gives specific instructions, directions, commands to his followers. This week, I title this little lesson, Disbelief. I want to take some of the threads of the last two sessions, and I hope tie them together. I'd like to start with the uh, last part of Mark's Gospel. I'm reading in chapter 16, beginning at the ninth verse. It's very short. Now, after he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. This short little passage, Mark confirms the truth, the accuracy of John's description of Mary Magdalene meeting the risen Lord outside the empty tomb. Remember, she presumed him to be the gardener from our reading last week. And he also confirms Luke's story about the two travelers to Emmaus who were walking along with Jesus but presumed him to be one of their fellow travelers. And he also confirms that in both cases, Mary Magdalene and the, um, the two travelers who once they realized it was Jesus, they all went to tell the others and to pronounce the good news to everybody else that they had seen the risen Lord. But Mark takes great pains to emphasize that in both cases, they did not believe. They didn't believe them. And the reason I think they didn't believe them is touched upon, I want to come back to this, but when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, in a little, almost a little aside, he said, Right now we see as through a glass darkly. Now, 
Think about seeing as through a glass darkly as we read these next few stories. I'd like to move to Luke chapter 24, beginning at the 33rd verse. This is the follow-on to the story that we read last week, the Emmaus Walk travelers, um, and after they had realized who they were with, they went back to Jerusalem to tell the to tell the good news. And here's Luke's story of how that happened. Verse 33. That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had made known to them in the breaking of the bread. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and at my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. This passage, like the passage we read before, also confirms the truth of another gospel account. That is, the apostles in the upper room on the on on Easter night. Remember that the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish authorities, and Jesus stood among them. That's in John's Gospel, chapter twenty. And John's Gospel focuses on Jesus having breathed on them the Spirit of God. Luke's Gospel focuses on their disbelief, and Jesus saying, "Look, see my hands." See my feet. Now, it doesn't mention the nail holes. We'll talk about that in a moment in another story. But that's the implication, that he's proving to them that he really is who he says he is and that he's risen from the dead. See, I have flesh. I have bone. And they did not believe it. Luke was writing to a mostly Hellenized world. He was a Greek, and he was writing to uh, readers who had a kind of a Greek way of thinking, and to the Greeks, the difference between flesh and blood and the spirit was literally night and day. I mean, to them, flesh and blood was corruption and and almost a, a, a euphemism for sin, whereas spirit was what is eternal and ephemeral and good. And so here is Jesus emphasizing to his followers, I am flesh and blood. And yet, they did not believe it. So, what did he do? He said, give me something to eat. Spirits don't have flesh and bone. And spirits most definitely don't eat broiled fish. And so he did that as a way of convincing to them that he was risen. And he was there in flesh and blood couple of little things also to note, and this is just a, a side 
light, but I think it's worth um, reading. And in, in verse 35, um, they were telling the disciples in the upper room how Jesus had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's a familiar, um, that's a familiar verse to us. It, it, it should trigger understanding in the, um, in the communion service. What we call the fraction anthem is where the priest breaks the bread. It's right after we've said the Lord's Prayer. And right before we say the prayer of humble access, the priest breaks the bread. And we have the little, the, the, the little word set to music, Be known to us, Lord Jesus, in the breaking of the bread. It's a, that's the fraction anthem. We, unfortunately, we don't do it anymore, but we used to, and I hope we will again one day. But that's where this comes from. And he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. But yet, they had trouble believing, even when they saw the, the nail holes in his hands and in his feet, and they felt his flesh and his bone, so he ate fish to convince them. Let's talk about the most famous example of doubt in all of the New Testament and turn to John chapter 20 beginning at the 24th verse now it starts from the same spot where we've just been reading from Luke the apostles in the upper room on Easter night The 24th verse of John's chapter 20. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is a powerful story, not least of all from Thomas's response to the realization that this was true. He says, My Lord and my God Frank Limehouse once preached a sermon that said this was one of the most profound things ever said about Jesus because it's easy enough for somebody to say, I pledge allegiance to you, um, as Michael Weeks would confirm, if you're in the, if you live somewhere in the British Commonwealth, you pledge allegiance to the British crown. And um, millions, tens of millions of people do that. Um, it's, it's another thing to be able to say, I acknowledge the existence of God. I mean, the, the, some of the humanists do that. We know that the deists at the beginning of our republic all believed in the, the reality of a God. 
even Satan believes in the reality of a God. But it's quite another thing to say, you are God and you are my Lord. And that's what Thomas said. A very, very true thing about Jesus. One of the most true things ever said about him, risen or before he was risen. And I think it's really a shame that Thomas is known as doubting Thomas. The one bad thing that we have in the Gospels about him, the one thing that reflects badly on Thomas How many of us would like to be known for all of eternity by the one thing that we're most ashamed of? You know, drunken Harbuck, or I won't even begin to speculate about you. Poor doubting Thomas, but he says something really profound here. But what's really, really profound, I think, is Jesus' answer. Have you believed because I proved it? Or to put it a different way, The only reason you believed is that I proved it. I gave you evidence that you cannot disbelieve. But the happiest of all of my followers are the ones who don't have the proof, but they believe anyway. I think it's significant that nowhere in these gospel stories do we have a single example of a believer who confronted the risen Lord and immediately knew who he was. Nor do we have any example of somebody who received the word that he was risen, direct evidence from somebody who had met him or somebody who had heard from the angels that he was risen and immediately believed. And I think if we did, if if there were evidence of, of some follower, some believer who immediately accepted it, it would probably be somewhere in the gospel, and yet we don't have it. And the question I want to grapple with is what explanation we might have for that. Last week, Steve gave us a pretty good explanation for why people might not have recognized the risen Lord when they were with him. Mary Magdalene was weeping. Uh, in front of the tomb, and it's, you know, your tears in your eyes, it's difficult to see clearly. The Emmaus walkers were going up and down narrow, rocky paths getting to, they weren't riding down the interstate, they were, they, they were walking on a trail, they were doing a trail hike, and of course you keep your feet, uh, you keep your eyes on the, on the ground ahead of you, you don't look around you that, that, that much. And then when they got to Emmaus, the story was, that it was starting to get dark. That's why they asked Jesus to stay with them. They didn't recognize him. They had their eyes elsewhere. Um, uh, we also just read how they were in the upper room and the doors were closed, and yet suddenly Jesus was there among them, and they didn't believe. Well, you know, if you're shocked, if you're stunned, if you're kind of knocked off your equilibrium and you you think you've seen a spirit, maybe you're not as rational as you might otherwise be. We'll read a story in a moment how the apostles are a hundred yards offshore in a boat and there's this figure on the seashore and it's the early morning and perhaps there's mist coming off the water and perhaps it's hard to tell who he is. And all of those are very rational explanations. And another rational explanation is the one that I threw out in the first session, that it was not really on their agendas. It, was, it did not fit the template of what they thought they were going to see. 
uh, they thought that he was dead. They thought that he was in the tomb. And even though he told them he would rise again, they didn't have any frame of reference to believe that. They did not believe, even when they saw him, that what they were seeing was what he was. I'm reminded of Vin Scully's famous call of the uh, Kirk, Gibson, <clears throat> Kirk Gibson's home run in game one of the 1988 World Series. Believe it or not, I'm going to talk about that. Remember uh, Vin Scully, the, the famous announcer for the Dodgers? He said, and this is timeless. Everybody will remember Vin Scully by this. I can't believe what I just saw. You can watch it on YouTube if you if you want to check me out on that. I saw it on YouTube about sometime in March, and I had forgotten what a dramatic moment that was in World Series history. And that's quite a segue from what I was what I was talking about. I'm but certainly glad you remember the important things. In life. There you go, the important things in life. Vin Scully in the 1988 World Series. Great at bat. But all of these explanations, I think, would be more than satisfactory for us if they were describing some human phenomenon that we could not quite explain. They make, added together, they would explain why somebody would not recognize somebody else. But this is not a human phenomenon. We're all believers. This was the most incredible event in all of human history, and it was a supernatural event. And I don't know about you, but for me, these explanations standing alone don't do it. They don't add up to a satisfactory answer to me. What I want to suggest to you instead is that on top of all of this, they were witnesses to the resurrection of the body we know what the resurrection of the body is, or at least we recite that we do. Those of you who are in the 9 o'clock service recited the Apostles' Creed, and you said, we believe in the resurrection of the body. I never really thought much about what it meant until years ago I went to the funeral of a friend who had been very decrepit at the end of his life. He had suffered a stroke. He was in a wheelchair. He was using oxygen, and I had the sense that his mind was still sharp whenever I, I encountered him, but I could, you know, it almost if his mind was sharp, he felt imprisoned in a body that didn't work. And yet at the funeral, the priest said, his body is perfect now. And I thought about that, and I thought, okay, that's the resurrection of the body. We don't believe that a person goes to heaven and is just this amorphous spirit. We believe in the literal resurrection of the body, that the body is then perfect. And I believe that that's what they were seeing here. They were seeing the risen Lord in a way that a resurrected body appears in heaven. And they talk about not having a template or not having a... a uh, any any frame of reference to understand that, boy, there's where you've got it. But think about that for a second. We're not talking about the same thing as Lazarus. We're not talking about the same thing as the little girl whom Jesus brought back to life when he said, Talitha kumi, you know, little girl, wake up. Those were examples of people who had died and were brought back to life. Their dead flesh 
was reanimated with life and they would go on living, but one day they would die again. This is something that nobody had ever seen before and nor have we, will we ever see again in this life. This was an example. This was a living, breathing example of the resurrection of the body, I think. And that this is a little glimpse in that moment, a glimpse of heaven. The question arises still, though, why didn't they know what they were seeing when they saw it? And the answer might be that they couldn't. And I'll explain what I mean. Let's look at John chapter 21. This is the story, the last story that we get in the Gospels of Jesus appearing to his followers. The Sea of Tiberias. You all know this story very well. I'm not going to read all the way through. I'm going to stop before we get to the famous exchange between Jesus and Simon Peter because that will be for next, for next time. But chapter 21 John's Gospel, beginning at the first verse. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Great story. Scholars don't all agree upon how this final chapter of John got to be written or added on to the, at the very end of the gospel. Some believe that John had finished his gospel at the end of chapter 20 and then later wrote this coda, if you will, 
to add to it. And there's some grounds for believing that. It's full of theology. It drips with theology. The idea that the word of the Lord can immediately cause fish to almost appear in the nets. Also, the idea that there were so many fish that the boat could not hold them. At the end of this chapter, uh, John writes that if all the things that Jesus did were written down, all of the books that it would contain, the world would not hold them. And I suppose that that's sort of a parallel there. Also, the the theology of the... um, the, the 153 large fish, but the net wasn't torn. Some impression may be that uh, the kingdom of God is large enough for all sorts and conditions of humanity, but it will not tear. It's big enough for all of us. But that's the theology, and I'm not a theologian. I want to talk about the detail, the beautiful, interesting detail. Notice that Peter is still acting like Peter. You know, Mr. Action, Mr. Mr. Um, let's not think about it, let's just go do it. They're sitting around up in Galilee, and he says, I'm going to go fishing. So they all go with him. He hears, it is the Lord. So what does he do? He jumps in the water and he swims ashore. He doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've caught. He said that, the, the verb that he used was a plural verb. Like he was speaking to all of them, bring me some of the fish. But who is it who runs back on the boat and bring? It's Simon Peter, you know, Peter being Peter, John being John. John was there on the on the boat, and he's the first one to say, "It's the Lord." He's the first one to figure it out. Notice also, um, you can almost imagine the reaction of these fishermen on the boat. These these guys were professionals. This is what they did for a living before they were called. And here's somebody on the, some smart aleck on the shore. Hey, you don't have any fish, do you? And you can imagine them like, you know, grinding their teeth and maybe rolling their eyes. And then he's telling us to cast the net on the right side of the boat. We've only been doing that all night long, you know, right side, left side, bow, stern, repeat all night long. And they hadn't caught anything. But this time he says, cast. And they, I can imagine them saying, oh, okay, why not? But also note that little bit in verse, verse 12, the second half of verse 12. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Now, that's a strange way to write that, don't you think? None of the guys... None of the disciples thought there was any reason to ask who he was because they knew who he was. Or none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? But they were really confused. I think the way John has set it up here, that's what he's implying. That they knew they were in the presence of Jesus, but he wasn't quite what they remembered. I can almost picture them sitting there around the fire and exchanging looks like, is that that him? And the other, yeah, 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 that's him. I I think, I think that's him. And it's, it's it's a vivid image, but it gets to, I think, 
a really important truth because even then, even when they knew that it was the Lord, they dared not ask Him because it was such an otherworldly experience. They must have marveled at the way He looked. Mary Magdalene, outside the tomb, must have marveled at the way he looked because she wanted to hug him. The two um, travelers to Emmaus must have been stunned in that moment of, of recognition when he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And all of that brings up, I think, an interesting question. If you notice in all of these stories, they recognize him when he does or says something familiar. We don't know why it was that Mary Magdalene recognized him only when he said Mary. Because right before then, remember in the, in the story we read last week, she said, he said to her, why are you weeping? And she presumed him to be the gardener. And, he, and she said, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. If you will tell me, I will go get him. And only then does he say, Mary. Maybe that was the tone of voice that he had used when he cast out the seven demons. And suddenly in that moment, he was revealed to her. As we've said before, in that moment when he broke the bread, the two disciples in Emmaus suddenly realized who he was. He was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. Same thing on the shore of Galilee. What did he do? He called them from the shore and he said, you haven't caught any fish. Well, remember when that happened before? It happened in Luke's Gospel, and that was the way that Jesus called James and John and Peter to be His disciples. Because He told them where to cast their nets, to cast fish, to catch fish, and suddenly He's doing it all over again. And then they get on the shore, and miraculously He's got a fire going, and He's got what? Bread and fish. And he hands them the loaves and the fishes. Now, where have they seen that before? When has that happened before? All of these are examples of Jesus doing something or saying something, I think, that was familiar to them and suddenly triggered that recognition. But notice that it was Jesus, it was Christ, it was the risen Lord who took that initiative in each of these examples. And that's why I get back to saying maybe they could not recognize him because maybe they, maybe we, don't have it in our own power to recognize heaven when we're confronted by it. We can't comprehend it. And we are not able to understand it, but we are given to understand it because Jesus reaches out to us. He finds us. He rescues us. We are the lost sheep that He, the shepherd, comes to find. And I think in the same sense here, Jesus revealed Himself. He did something that allowed them to see Him. As the, the old gospel metaphor, the scales falling from their eyes, suddenly they were able to see Him as He was, but because he allowed them to. He revealed himself to them in the breaking of the bread, 
in the passing of the fish, in the speaking to Mary Magdalene, in appearing in the upper room. So, all of this, I think, is to say, to get back to Paul's letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, where he wrote to them in the King James Version, today we see as through a glass darkly, but in more modern translations, ones that make a little bit more sense in our modern environment, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, right now we see as though we are looking in a mirror, and the image that we see is distorted. You know, early, early glass was not as, as, as clear and as uniform as glass is today. And early mirrors were almost like a funhouse mirror. That's what Paul is saying. He said, right now we see as though we're looking into a slightly distorted mirror. We can get the image, but we can't see it as it really is. But what does he write after that? He said, but soon we will see as though face to face. So I, I suggest to you, and this is the, the end of my little, my blessed little thought, if you will, that they did not believe, they did not see him, they did not recognize him because something about us in this world makes us incapable of truly seeing God through Christ as he really is. We can get a glimpse of it. As John wrote in his in the preamble to his gospel, he said, No man has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son has made him known. That is, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And in that moment of recognition in these resurrection stories, I submit that they saw Jesus for that moment clearly, face to face, not as through a glass darkly, not distorted, but clearly and precisely and for who he was. They got a little glimpse of heaven in that moment, in the resurrection of the body through the risen Lord. Thoughts, comments, questions, coffee? Well, it's a human nature is constant. We would have, as you said, we would probably have the same trouble in recognizing Jesus or recognizing him. And the, the disciples are just us. And the advantage we have is we've had 2,000 years of reflection to work this out. Right. And to come to an understanding of what happened. Right. And they had no time. They had a week or 10 days. Mm -hmm. And given what Given how news translated in those days, how things were shared amongst people, today you reach in your pocket and you grab your cell phone and you do a quick, <laughs> yeah, a quick right. note to somebody right. in, in France even. Well, in those days, that message would have taken three or four months to get there. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of reflection, plus we have the advantage of knowing more who we are and how the humans and yet, as Coffee said, we are all those disciples. We have the same problem that they had in recognizing him for who he really is, even when we are believers, even when we have 2,000 years of context. Well, I've got to go and serve at the 11 o'clock service. That's why I'm already vested. That's why Mr. McCall is already vested. So thank you all for coming. Could we, could we close with a prayer quickly?
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you make yourself known to us in the breaking of the bread and that you offer us a one-on-one, face-to-face encounter. We ask that you would conquer our unbelief and let us know God through you. In the name, in your holy name, we pray all of this. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.